Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the heartland of America talk about politics and the news. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. To start us off, Craig, uh, we're going to talk about Election Day. This past Tuesday was abysmal for the Democrats. <laughs> I, I think it just uh, codified everything that they thought could go wrong went wrong. Not only did they lose Virginia resoundingly, but uh, they had a very close race in New Jersey, almost lost New Jersey. And I think that there is a lot to take away in the tea leaves here. The question is whether or not Democrats are going to learn from this and be able to pivot. We seem to be beyond the era of the triangulators. So the Democrats like Bill Clinton and other third way centrist Democrats who would realize they went too far and take a step back and they were able to read the electorate very well. Now, I don't know if it's a matter of Democrats just can't read the electorate or they just choose not to, but we, we don't see those pivots anymore. No. And Brandon, there's a guy in the bush behind you in the window. I think they're hanging up Christmas lights. Oh my God, I just so saw if, that if now. you yeah. see me like completely like looking beside you or around you, I'm, I'm just slightly fascinated. Distracting. I'm fascinated with how this guy is navigating this giant bush that's behind you because he seems to be just just barreling through it. So I'm I'm curious uh, about this guy. That time of year, um, yeah, just a horrible night for Democrats. Um, kind of saw the writing. I think both of you and I last last time we potted for election said we expected McAuliffe to to pull out a very very small victory, which is that's where I was heading into Tuesday. And the polling kept tightening. So yeah. based on the polling, we knew that the momentum though was with Youngin. Polling's tightening, but but again the. At least during presidential elections, Virginia has been pretty solid. Blue, uh, Biden won it by, what, 10-plus points? Right. It wasn't really an issue. And while Trump isn't on the ballot and Trump is not in office, this is the first kind of trial run we've had as Democrats with an election where we're still making Trump and the Republicans front and center. And I think we can, we can report um, without beyond any shadow of a doubt that failed miserably. Yes. While, while McAuliffe, am I saying his name right? McAuliffe. McAuliffe. He needs to change his name because it's going <laughs> like it's going Macaulay, and then it just makes this hard turn. But McAuliffe decided to run against Donald Trump, and that Donald Trump was on the ballot in the form of, of Yunkin, his opponent. And from what I've been able to learn more about Yunkin, that's pretty far from the truth. Yunkin was able to thread this needle where he accepted Trump's um, endorsement, but he did not reach out to Trump's base. He kind of said, I will accept your endorsement, but that does not mean I endorse you. And Trump, for some reason, he he, he stood down. He yeah. did not interfere. That's the first sign of, I think, the what, what the Democrats, part of our strategy moving forward is interference from Trump, like we saw in Georgia, will help us along the way. I think what this proves is that if you're going to make the election majority about race, white supremacy and Trump and Trump's not on the ballot and the candidate doesn't cozy up to Trump. That's just not going to work. Right. You had a disciplined candidate. You had candidate, uh, Trump staying out of the race. Now we know that next year that won't be the case because Trump has already gone full oh, yeah. board uh, publicly with his support for various candidates for the Senate and house next year. So it'll be a different matter, but also this year, I think you, we have to stress that, you know, the tying a candidate to Trump strategy that worked in California for the governor recall. Sure. But that was also very different. You had an undisciplined candidate, a talk show host, yeah, radio absolutely. host that was not a serious candidate, no. who basically parroted all of the Trump lines in terms of rigged election and in terms of uh, COVID paranoia and vaccine skepticism. And it was very different with Youngin because Youngin did not uh, echo any of that craziness. No. And so he was able to separate himself and keep Trump at arm's length. And then he was also able to, in a very savvy way, capitalize on voter angst and discontent um, with local issues. And we always talk about how, you know, elections have become nationalized now. Uh, but this seems to be the first election, I think, due to the pandemic, where local issues are back in the forefront, yeah. because the pandemic brought schools and education directly to the surface as a paramount issue for voters. That resonated in this election. You have parents that are just fatigued and upset with, you know, school closings yeah. and up and down directives and um and then you add the critical race theory um but you know buzz that the gop is generating it was a perfect storm for a focus on local issues and there was still the potential there for 
McAuliffe to, uh, I think, seize that issue away, mm-hmm. but he did not. And he had that famous gaffe during the debate yeah. where he said parents have should have no say, basically, in their children's education. And I don't think he was able to recover from that. He didn't really have a good message And he on chose education. not to even try. Right. He just he bowed out of the his, discussion. His closing argument to the people of Virginia was basically where he let the head of the teachers union address the DNC that night in Virginia. I mean, that's just, that, that's ridiculous. What, what I don't understand is what strategy was he running on? Because to your point, for 18 months, Virginia public schools were closed. Yeah. The, the, the school system and parents are a raw nerve right now. Even right. if all the stuff around CRT and what happened in Loudoun County with the, the alleged rape of that young woman, even if all of that wouldn't have happened and wouldn't have gained national attention, Parents are just straight up aggravated with schools. They are. Right and at now. the very least, you gotta just be able to express empathy and say, Correct. you know, I feel your pain. Like this has been rough. And and this is where we're gonna get out of this. This is how this is the end of the line. He didn't do that. He had no countervailing message. And that was the problem. Yeah. And, and I think especially in this dynamic where uh, people are still struggling. It's just, it's crazy to me that somebody like McAuliffe, who was a successful governor, you know, several years Mm -hmm. ago, and who campaigned on the economy and campaigned on bread and butter issues, he wasn't able to rep... Uh, to to do that again, and I don't know why. I it it's just boggles the mind. Who was the strategist that said what you want to double down on and who you want to preach to are the people that are already on your side in the teachers union? They're not going to vote for Yunkin anyway. Somebody somebody was in his ear and told him yes. you need to focus solely on the party's liberal base and and them only and make this a referendum on Trump and just Trump, Trump, Trump all day. And that's what he did. He didn't replicate his winning strategy no. from when he was governor before. He just – it was all Trump, and Trump is a president. And there's a wide swath of the electorate that is ready to move on from Trump. That's why they voted yes. for Biden. And many of – several of those suburbanites who voted for Biden and then voted for Yunkin this time, you know, that's, I think, what they were thinking as well, because, you know, I think in their minds, they're like, okay, Trump was last year, Trump was yesterday, let's move on. There's local issues we care about. And the other thing was that uh, McAuliffe got blown out in rural areas, um, did far worse than Biden did. I mean, 80% plus um, of the vote went for Yunkin and most of the rural counties throughout Virginia. And again, it speaks to a lack of messaging, not just ignoring those voters entirely. There was no message to them. There was no economic message. There was no feeling pain about inflation, supply chain issues, all of that that voters are feeling right now. They want somebody to be able to speak to that and say, hey, this is our plan. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There was no plan put out by McAuliffe. I heard him um, last week, right before the election, on Pod Save America doing an interview, and I found him quite unimpressive. I mean, he had no message, and he was kind of joking around, and he's like, well, we're not Trump, and we're going to safeguard your rights, and that was about it. I made a lot of assumptions about Terry McAuliffe based on the fact that he was governor before, and that he would bring a governor's presence and knew how to win the state. Well, and he does know how to win. He's done it, and he's done it right, but he just, I don't know what happened by all accounts he was a successful and popular governor yes and i understand that that the sentiment against incumbents is still still very negative right now but the fact that you cannot weave that into somewhere in your campaign instead of talking about the the alleged racist dog whistles that yunkin is is using in his campaign which to a large majority of americans they simply roll their eyes as here we go again why didn't you talk about some of the stuff that you did the last time you were governor how it was successful remind people yeah of that you've done the job about the good times brandon is this just another attack on expertise i mean i would have led with guys i've done this i know how to do this I, I, I'm well, an expert at I don't the governing think, Virginia. I don't think it was in tech and expertise because he never made the case. True. That's one thing I learned in campaign school at uh, George Washington University in D.C. You have uh, to make a case. And the best candidates that are most effective make a case, vote for me because X, Y, and Z, vote against my opponent because X, Y, and Z. You and, can't just have half of that equation. It doesn't work. What did they talk about? A positive message, an uplifting message, something that people can feel good about. I think that's something that as Democrats, we've lost sight of. 
yeah, we're coming out of this long national nightmare of uh, being, uh, you know, in isolation during the pandemic and having our lives turned upside down and having all of this disruption in, in schools and the workplace and our family life. And, and, and people want a sunny, optimistic vision. And again and again, we see candidates failing to get that. And I don't know why. I don't know why that there's just there's nobody grabbing and seizing yeah. on that mantle. As, as a as a parent of two kids that have gone through public school, I can tell you nothing animates a neighborhood party like something happening in the local school district. Yeah. And I think the Democrats just made a, a base miscalculation about number one, teachers are very unpopular right now. The 18-month interruption of sending your kid to school during the pandemic was catastrophic to a lot of people in Virginia. And they just don't want to hear about how bad teachers have it. And they certainly don't want to hear somebody say the teachers were the heroes of the pandemic, which is what McAulfey said, too, after he had his horrible gaffe. And while speaking to the teachers union, after he made that gaffe, he just doubled and tripled down on, to your point, I'm not trying to reach out and activate rural areas or build my coalition. I'm just double tripling down and playing to people who I know are going to vote for me. Yeah. And in the end, he got, he got his ass kicked. Right. And so the writing was on the wall. I mean, that strategy doesn't work. Uh, You know, the, the interesting thing is he played so much to his base, but his base turned out and fewer numbers than the Republican base. Yep. So there's that pro- problem. Some of that is his own fault, um, not being able to engage them and to motivate, mobilize them. Part of it is President Biden with low approval ratings yep. underwater in Virginia as he is in New Jersey. Um, and, and, you know, and I do think that the gridlock in D.C. and the lack of legislation with uh, the Build Back Better bill and uh, the infrastructure package had an impact, but it's not the outsized impact everybody wants to make it out to be. I think a lot of this still comes down to local level issues and being able to run an effective yeah. race. And I think you can supersede some of those national issues. And somebody like McAuliffe would have to in Virginia anyway, because I think people still forget, yeah, Virginia leans blue, but it's not Massachusetts. No. And you still have to gain independence. And the fact was that Democrats aren't enough in Virginia. You have to at least have Democrats and independents to win. And McAuliffe lost independence. So the Build Back Better agenda, as it pertains to Virginia, do you think more base Democrats didn't vote because the agenda hasn't passed or most or or base Democrats didn't vote because they don't understand or agree with the agenda or thought, Biden, we didn't elect you to bite off this big of a piece of legislation? Where's the norm? Where's the normalcy? Where's the centerist at? Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I think more so, I mean, the legislation played into it from the standpoint of just not being able to get things done, but I don't think it was the one and only factor on them not turning out. I think it was more, it fed into the broader narrative that things aren't getting done. Yeah. Democrats, you know, have the majority, and granted, it's only 50 seats and it's not a majority majority, but in the minds of voters, they see Democrats as having total power in and- Washington and still not being able to accomplish anything. And parallel to that, um, you know, we have the economic disruptions that people are seeing at their grocery store and, you know, and supply yeah. chain delays. And so there's just a feeling that we're in the slog now that those haven't been resolved. You know, we're, we've kind of come out of COVID, but we're not completely out of it. And the pandemic is still just kind of lingering on. Uh, so there, there's that. So it's just this kind of malaise. We're just kind of in stock yeah. and neutral. And, you know, and I think, The problem, too, that the Biden White House has is, from a messaging standpoint, they've been pretty poor. I mean, there hasn't been great messaging on any of these items. Biden's approval started going down with the pullout in Afghanistan and the way that that went. Yep. And then a series of events happened since then that have just only worsened that. But they haven't had a message either. I mean, Biden hasn't given a primetime address saying, here's the economic plan. Here's what I'm doing about the supply chain issue. But isn't it this link to... Biden didn't promise big change. He didn't run on big change. He ran on return to normal, and I'm not that guy. Right. And I think part of what we're seeing is a backlash to, wait a minute, this is not exactly who we thought we were voting for. We thought we were voting for a down-the-middle centrist who was going to focus on unity and bringing people together. We didn't vote for FDR. 
We don't even know if we need FDR. And suddenly, and in the span of your first year, you had a chaotic pull out of Afghanistan, which nobody seems to know why you executed this the way you did. And now you come with this Build Back Better agenda, which this single piece of legislation by your own mouth has said you're attempting to rewrite the bargain between the government and the American people. This is not what a lot of people wanted right now. True. My only, I, I think, uh, rebuttal to that is I don't know how many people actually know the details and the mechanics of the Build Back Better program. It, I think they know it be a problem. high level. So that's part of the problem. But I think what sticks in their mind is the price tag, right? So initially when there was that $3.5 trillion, people recognized that. And that's a lot of money. And so now we're fighting over trillions of dollars. Is it one and a half versus three? So I think that rings in people's minds. And so there's that aspect. And the fact that nothing is getting done. And, of course, the focus on what to include, what not to include, which most people still have no idea what the final package is going to look like, so you can't market it. Yeah, that's the killer. And it takes away attention from the one part of that package that has universal appeal, which is the infrastructure, where you have the infrastructure which pulls well across all groups, was able to get, uh, what was it, um, 19 Republican votes. And pulling that out as a separate bill? Massive tactical mistake. Oh, yeah. Huge tactical error. I mean, if you think if that had been passed, at least it would have given something the wind at the sails to say, hey, we did this. It's popular. Everybody agrees that we haven't had an infrastructure bill in decades, and we have crumbling infrastructure. We need to tackle this. But it's drowning in this, you know, just logjam over everything else and over the social spending aspects you, of the bill. You missed a layup because you were trying to do a 360 windmill dunk. Right. Just take the layup. You mentioned the word malaise. That's a very famous word for a president. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think people remember uh, Jimmy Carter, yeah. And he gave the speech in the late 70s that the American people were in a malaise. And I, I, I think if I'm getting this right, this was regarding the economy and, and people needed to get back out and people needed to spend and we needed to get back to kind of, kind of living our lives economically the way we had lived before. And that we, the American people had allowed themselves to kind of fall into this, this malaise and this despair. And it was the attitude of the American people that was holding the economy and the nation back. Right. I think and, that's somewhat... And that was an that economic... Speech. Uh, economically driven malaise. And I, I would, our malaise is a little bit different. There's facets of the economy to play in, but we don't have an employment problem like we did in the 70s. We have a different employment It's a problem. very different employment. It's the finding workers, but in terms of jobs, like there's plenty of jobs. But the malaise here is more of a malaise related to the feeling that we're still not quite back to normal. We suffered all of these setbacks due to the pandemic, and we're just kind of slogging along. We don't know with, where to go. With, yeah, directionless. And, and what we, are we don't have anybody to? who's set out the path saying, you know, this is where we're headed towards. And that's what we're missing. And can you describe what happened to to President Carter after he gave that speech? Oh, after the the famous (laughs) speech? Well, I mean, he... It didn't go over well. It did not go over well. And, you know, the um, he suffered the consequences in the the election and was never able to recover, really. And And I think the lesson from that is one thing every president knows. What the American people will not tolerate is having a finger pointed to them and say, you are the problem. Right. Nobody is in the mood to hear after what, especially we've been through the last 18 months with the pandemic, that we are in any way, shape, or form part of the reason why the country is in this position. Agreed. And I think, you know, you look at, you know, when Democrats are quibbling or battling over this aspect of the bill or that aspect or talking about climate, and we all know that climate's a big issue that impacts all of us, but when all of that is being discussed at the detriment or uh, of the economy and what's just going on in people's lives, I think that's where people get annoyed and frustrated yeah. and upset, and they start to either politically tune out or start voting the other way because they, they don't see that. And so I think – and to your point, uh, Biden was elected as a bridge builder. I mean he was elected as somebody what we thought. who could provide uh, what we call normalcy, I think. you know, And I think he even used those words at the time, the return to normalcy after you know this long – you know, four years of Trump that was just one, uh, I think, disruption after another. So I think that's what people are looking to. It's the basics. It's being able to bring us out of COVID, stabilize the economy, um, get us back to normal at some point, and then, um, and then can focus on some of these other issues and have those battles. So CRT was in 
Ford, Virginia, it, it was one of the top three issues in any poll you, you looked at. It was not a top issue in New Jersey, where no. Phil Murphy had to go, I think, into Wednesday before they finally called that he had won that. Right. That election really didn't get any attention nationally because no. that one was supposed to be foregone conclusion. And he was leading the polls. Murphy was by you know anywhere from seven to ten points. So if CRT wasn't an issue and local school districts wasn't an issue in New Jersey, what's the problem we had there? Well, and New Jersey, I think, again, it was a ability to speak to local issues because Murphy had his height of popularity was during the pandemic. So, you know, when he took the, um, I think, cautious approach to yeah. masking and to um, schooling, like he had high marks in New Jersey and had high marks for the longest time. And more recently, there's been a focus on on local issues again, on taxes, yeah, on on infrastructure, law and order, stuff. and law and order, um, which is big. You know, there's many, there's several cities in New Jersey that have very high homicide rates. Yeah, so I think the Republican was able to capitalize on that and, and focus attention on that. Um, Murphy also made, I think, a gap, a misstep that rubbed some New Jerseyans the wrong way when um, he said, well, if, you know, if taxes are your issue or high taxes are, you know, don't move to New Jersey. Um, That's not a very good answer. Yeah. It's very just kind of flippant, right? Condescending or maybe saying, well, you know, we do have high taxes, you know, we use them to pay X, Y, and Z, but maybe there's an opportunity here where we can lower the property tax. We have the highest property tax rate in the country. We know families are struggling. Well, well, let's take a look and see if there's anything we can do innovative to bring it down. I mean, there was a way to handle that rather than being flippant about it. And, and I think that also played into his opponent's strategy who used those remarks. So I think it was local issues, but it was just different. It wasn't so much um, this education as it was uh, crime and yeah. uh, the economy, taxes. So a Republican candidate who didn't tie himself to Trump talking about traditional Republican issues right. that are local to the state. And a fairly moderate Republican candidate. What's he was it? in the C- legislature. C- Citrinelli. Citrinelli. Citrinelli, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I mean, basic, simple issues that are known to the party. And New Jersey is a very blue state, but they have elected several Republican yeah. governors. And it's very rare for a Democrat to get reelected in New Jersey, surprisingly. He, so Murphy is the first one to win re-election, although barely, um, going back to 1977. Who was the, there was the New Jersey governor who went to jail, didn't he? Who was like a crook? Bob Torricelli. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, so he, yeah. I mean, there's been many New Jersey <laughs> governors that have been crooks. So New Jersey and Louisiana vie for like Well, you got to throw Illinois, my home state. Oh, Illinois. How could I forget we Illinois? Said, we said Illinois, long, Louisiana, long and New Jersey. history of sending governors oh, yeah. to jail. Oh, that's true, Jim yeah. Thompson. Um, Rob Golovich. So was it Governor Ryan who went? Uh, to, probably. Yeah, there was a Governor Ryan at some point. Last year on my birthday, a friend of mine got me a cameo from Rob Golovich. Oh my it gosh! It was twelve minutes long. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry. I think it cost him twelve dollars. It was like eight minutes. Long. It was only twelve dollars. That's a yeah, cheap one. That, that's I mean, all, he's always getting. He's kind of desperate. I think. And literally, he. Th- thought he it was like a cnn segment it was like he was on a panel on cnn because he was giving me his his political beliefs on trump and everything at the time so oh, okay so you know if you create a crime as governor you can always fall back on Blagojevich, who ended up being pardoned by revenue. trump yeah of course but birds of a feather local yes traditional not crazy that seems to be a formula especially for the republicans right now the republicans have the Republicans have the massive Trump problem that they have to figure out how. Oh, and they to still do. With. And I do want to take a step back and say I don't know the situation in New Jersey with how uh, Citarelli was uh, came through the primary system, but uh, Virginia Republicans dodged a bullet in many ways because uh, Youngen did not come out of a primary. So Virginia Republicans engineered this Byzantine system um, of conventions, uh, basically. So they had these uh, party conventions to get him through. And what else did they They, add? They didn't dodge a bullet. They did what a party supposed to right. do. Because that other chick, Amanda... Trump and Heels Trump is and what Heels, she said, yeah. They looked at that broad and said, there ain't no way. There was her and there was another crazy conspiracy nut candidate. But to your point, was, they rigged the system up a little they bit. They rigged the system so they could give... the best chance yep. to get through. Because normally, in a normal primary system, someone like Youngin would not have come out of that. 
at all because that the primary he it would be about who could profess their loyalty to Trump who's going to say yes to the big lie you know they would those candidates would all have to be on record and so Virginia Republicans intentionally changed the system to be able to make it so he could come out. They did what adults do. They yeah. looked at it and said, we're not letting that go under our brand. We're going to change it so this person. And if she would have gotten into the, uh, if she would have won the the primary, she'd have been blown out. Oh, yeah. There's no way that person would have won. Oh, well, yeah, not at all. And so that's, I think, the challenge is Republicans aren't going to be able to do that elsewhere in all other states. Uh, the party apparatus isn't as strong in other states as it is yeah. in Virginia. It's more disorganized. It's more chaotic. So, um, so the the uh, challenge is that you're not going to have a lot of Yunkin-type candidates necessarily come out of other primaries. So you don't think that other states and other candidates can, can emulate what Virginia and Yunkin did? Uh, some may, but not all of them will be able to, because I think some of that is governed by state law. Some of it is governed by um, very intricate party uh, uh, edicts that have to be overturned by delegates, like at a convention. So I think it's going to be difficult. So there may be a few states that are going to be able to engineer something like that, but there are going to be many that won't. Uh, And and the challenge is that uh, Virginia still had the so-called adults in the room who had that power. There are many state parties that have just been completely overcome by the Trump MAGA world. A good example is Arizona. Like if you followed like their party chair and their party apparatus, it's batshit crazy. Like it's just not. They're awful. Yeah. I could could see a meeting where Yunkin is meeting with the Republicans in Virginia and says, I'll do this, but I'm not even talking to that woman. I'm not being on stage with her. In no way, shape, or form am I presenting that her and I are the same. So if you can take care of that problem, I have an interest in running. And I think that you're right, state by state. Some states are too far gone. They're just caught up in in Trump right now and couldn't do it. But I do think more states are going to take a look at that. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be interesting. And the question is whether or not, um, especially for the next election cycle, I don't think there's enough time necessarily to re-engineer something like Virginia did. But I wanted to go with the Republicans have a Trump problem that they still haven't figured out. That that hasn't gone away. And and, and, in fact, that's going to be more visible next year because Trump is going to be more front and center. He ain't sitting out all these races. I mean, his PAC is bankrolling many of these candidates. (laughs) Did did you see his his release from his the desk of Trump or whatever the shit he calls that where, Hey, just want to let you know, Yunkin won because my people voted for him. (laughs) Right. I mean, he ain't winning without me. Of course he has to put out something. Of course. So he's, they've got that problem. The Democrats, I think it's coming into focus how big our progressive problem is and that we have this wing of the party that continues to push this broad and massive progressive agenda that it looks like Biden has adopted. He hasn't told them no, he hasn't pushed back that I think we're learning maybe in totality is not very popular with the American people. It's easy to take out a single program and say this alone, not in the middle of this $2 trillion, whatever, right. do you like this? And there are aspects that are popular, like the paid leave, which is very sure. popular, you know, but again, it's when you throw all of this together in this kind of a progressive, you know, grab bag of policy, you're evidently and inevitably going to have, aspects of it that are not popular and it's going to drag the whole thing down. And, and I, I understand crossing Trump and that comes with some real penalties because he controls one third of your vote of your the Republican voters with kind of an iron fist so far. And there hasn't been the Virginia is the first sign that maybe some of that is is loosening if he doesn't get directly involved. Who who are the Democrats performing this for the squad for Cory Bush? I don't, I don't understand who, who is out there that's dictating our strategy to the Democrats and dictating it to the president. What do they have that we need? I I don't, I don't get it. They don't come with a one third coalition. The, the, the programs that they're pushing and their overall general attitude is off putting to the vast majority of, of Democrats in the United States. But, But for some reason, we won't just turn to those four or five double bird and say, you're done. But the, the issue is when you have a majority of only three in the house, you can't afford to lose anybody. So the progressive caucus, even though it's not the majority 
uh, they are enough in numbers to where they can kill legislation if it doesn't include everything that sure. they like. So that and that's part of the calculus. And you have Democrats saying, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We're likely to lose the House next year. We're uh, going to lose the House Right. Next this year. is our only opportunity to push things through. And so we should try to push everything through that we can. It's not terribly unlike the strategy Republicans had when they controlled everything and Mitch McConnell trying to get as much across the finish line as possible. There's that aspect now when it comes to both parties that um, you take advantage of the moment and you try to push as hard as you can, regardless of whether or not the American people have an appetite for as far left or far right as you're going to go. You just do it anyway uh, and and get done what you can. And it's all about, uh, you know, just seizing the moment. So that's what's happening. And I don't know if the squad realizes there's being in power and there's being out of power. Or does that even matter anymore? Because if you're in Congress to brand build, to build your Instagram following, and just to hear yourself talk, being in power, being out of power makes no difference. No. You and, can and brand th- build in either, either scenario. Well, and I think there's people on the right and the left that are doing that, right? And I Absolutely. think at the end of the day, they don't care, right? It, because for them, it is about brand building. It's about uh, monetizing what they're doing. And, and it's about their own self-interest more so than anything else. I, I just want Biden to call... Th- some junior Congress people in his office and say, tonight you pass that bill, the infrastructure bill, or I will bury all of you. You want to see going down? We'll go down together. We'll lock hands and just all jump off a cliff. Well, something, I'll throw every one of you under the bus if I have to. Something needs to give soon. I mean, it's yeah. just this can't you continue. Play? I've been here 40 years. I know every trick in the book. Let, let's go. I will know. I thought it was just tone deaf and completely out of touch. AOC came out and said that, uh, you know, the, Democrats lost Tuesday night because of too much moderation, Uh, Uh, you know, and that's completely opposite. That's not why they lost. And granted, on the local level, progressives notched a few wins, uh, you know, mayor of Boston, mayor of Cleveland, but moderates also notched several wins. Uh, The mayor of Minneapolis driver beat the Virginia Senate president. Yeah. Did you see that? I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, Virginia, Virginia, New Jersey, right? Or, or was, it, was it New Jersey? I thought, I thought it was Virginia. It may have been New Jersey. Okay. Maybe, let's say it was New Jersey. Yeah. Anyway, a truck driver with no political experience knocked off the person who is the president of the New Jersey Senate. Right. In a shocking race. Crazy, yeah. That may feel good when you did it. And I don't know who this gentleman is who's the truck driver. I'm going to guess he doesn't have the political expertise yeah. to be a state senator. It feels good now. You might regret that decision six or eight months down. down Agreed. I mean, experience matters, right? And expertise matters. And so, you know, I think voters realize that in time. But there were several wins by moderate Dems. You had Buffalo, New York, where you had a declared socialist who won the primary. And you had Hmm. a moderate Dem um, incumbent who staged a ride-in and beat. Uh, her by 59% to 41% on a write-in bid. You had Seattle, which elected a moderate Democratic mayor. You had the moderate Democratic mayor of Minneapolis re-elected. You had a moderate Republican elected as district attorney in Seattle. So you had all of this. And then the referendum in Minneapolis, they voted, Minneapolis voters decided to keep the police department, Shocking. not replace it with the Department of Public Shocking. Safety. So again, and Minneapolis is, again is one of the most blue liberal cities in the country. But again, there's only so far you can go with some of this. And I think the activists forget that even when it comes to their own voters with Democratic voters, they're not as far left as many of the activists think that they are. It's almost like activists feel everything is a congressional race where you're running in a district of everybody who looks, acts, and thinks like you. Right. And they don't realize that in a state race, you've got to get a much bigger audience to play. And they just, they just can't. I think the basic problem with Democrats is there's a lot of us that just refuse to believe that there's half the country that doesn't think the way we think. Yeah. And we just can't fathom that somebody wouldn't think about racism, institutions, um, uh, capitalism, the economy, the world of work, the way we do. And it just, it literally puts us in a panic when something like this happens because we're forced to kind of confront the worldview that not everybody thinks the way we yeah. think. And we're going to have to deal with other people if we want to stay in power and move and move forward. Right. There has to be a recognition of the, the fact that we're a divided country and that you have to uh, modify your policy approach. You have to moderate your yeah. tone and your... Um, 
your planning and what you want to accomplish. And, and you have to adjust. You basically have to adjust to fit the situation and, and your political environment. And time and time again, liberals, it's almost like they choose to just put themselves in a bubble and yeah. kind of ignore the environment around them um, rather than make some of the difficult choices to compromise and actually get legislation done and to create an agenda that's viable. And, you know, this isn't the first time either. I mean, we've said from the very beginning that defunding the police and that terminology was a, not a winner. It's just you know, dumb. it's just not. That's not the way. Um, you can talk about police reform, and that will resonate with Americans. But if you're talking about defunding the entire police department, doing away with police department, that's a non-starter. And Democrats are going to suffer for that. Yeah. I mean, if you just look around and every building you see has an owner to it. Yeah. Do you think that owner wants to abolish the police? No. 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 If you own anything, you want the police in a you, you want the police to to fill the traditional duties around protection of property and person that they always have. Right. Is there room for for rejigger? Absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody's saying that. But a blanket defund, I love we place with what in, in Minneapolis? A a social agency that is more centric towards providing services than law enforcement. I mean, that's what it sounded like—a okay. department of public safety. I, I, you know, and it'd be, I don't know how that works, and you know, and I don't see how that can take over the role. No, traditional police role. And there's something to be said. I mean, police officers do get stretched thin. They're sent out mental health calls. There's a number of cities that have found innovative ways to uh, hire mental health co-responders to go out with police to de-escalate. That sounds good. De-escalate situations. Yeah, and and alleviate some of the burden when it comes to um, social situations that isn't really in the police purview. So that's different. But saying you're going to just replace the police and we don't need police at all and we'll just create just some kind of silly. completely different department or agency makes yeah. no sense. So let's project, what does this mean for the 2022 midterms? And I heard coming in today that Obama, I believe, in both of his midterms, he lost. He got. He lost the house huge in 2010. Right, his first midterm. Yes, that's where we lost like 60 freaking seats or more. 63. Yeah. And then in 2014, we lost the Senate too. Right. And Obama's response to this was, "Well, lots of you know millions of people still voted for Democrats. You know, I know I got blown out here, and I know that the country might be trying to send me a message on some of my agenda points, but he just doubled right back down. Never even considered pivoting." To, to other policies that might include some of the areas of concern that people voted for the new Congress and, and the new Senate. And Bill Clinton was the only president that I could think of in recent memory who, after a couple of rough years in, in, in the White House, decided, I need to make some pivots. You know, and he got away from some of the traditional Democratic issues and started talking about taxes, started talking about the, the, the death of big government. He actually pivoted more towards where the electorate was and from there became two-term President Clinton. Yeah. Who, who was his political advisor? Dick. God Dick damn it. Morris. Dick yeah. Morris. Thank you. My all-time favorite political pundit. Dick Morris is just... It, <laughs> It, 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 it's a comedy routine. He does. There's yeah. no way he can take himself seriously. <laughs> but Dick Morris, who tr is traditionally conservative and Republican, yeah. he was the, the, the consultant or the pundit or the counsel that worked with Clinton to help him make this pivot. Do you see any evidence that the Democrats are going to make any pivots? Or are we just riding this to ground? Not yet. I mean, I think they're just going to yeah. continue riding where they are. And it's the norm for a president's uh, party, especially the midterms after presidential election, to lose seats. The question is how many. If the Democrats had a comfortable majority of 40, 50 seats, you know, they could withstand losing no. several and be fine. They only have a majority of three seats. So yeah. that's the problem. They had gained 40 some seats in 2018, but then they lost several of those in 2020 uh, yeah. last year. So they don't have any room to maneuver. And I, there's only one occasion in the last and recent memory where a president's party gained seats, and that was in 2002, coming off of 9-11. Yeah. So that was an anomaly. You know, those circumstances were very different. Uh, so, it, you know, it's not impossible, but it's very, very unlikely the Democrats would somehow gain seats. Uh, you know, I still think so that the House is almost gone for them, I basically. Think so. 
I still think, depending on if political fortunes turn and, you know, we come out of this, we still have a year and a lot can happen in a year. It is possible to hold the Senate um, or make a gain of a seat or two. Uh, but they have to do everything right. And the question is, will they make the right decisions and pivot as they need to to make that happen? That's that's the real question. Think about back to the early part of the year in Biden's, Biden's presidency. What if he would have come out and said, OK, we're going to pass the traditional infrastructure bill with with 19 uh, Republican senators? This is a true bipartisan bill. What if instead of coupling this with Build Back Better— he just basically came out and said, there are three big things that we learned in the pandemic that we feel can help the American people the most. Yeah. Number one is daycare. We, we, we need some sort of way to, to provide you some assistance in, with daycare. If two people work and you've got two kids in daycare, you're paying probably two to three times what your house payment is in daycare alone. Right. It's just not viable anymore. And to make sure the economy gets back on its feet and people get back to where they need to be, we're going to do everything we can to help you with daycare. The second is education. We learned how important education is. High K-12 education is now. I mean, did anybody like having their kids home all day? That sucked. We're going to kick in and we're going to try to build more Head Start programs, more after-school programs, more things to help your kids um, around school, be successful in school. And we're also going to say two-year junior college is free. And the third one is healthcare, because what we really learned in this pandemic, your access to healthcare cannot be tied to having a job. And also your prescription quality, drugs, I would say, is kind we'll of an answer to that. One that. Yeah. Too, but your your quality of healthcare in the United States is tied to your job title. Yeah. I mean, if you work at a big place, the executives have a Cadillac program that, that you don't. That's just basically not fair. And how would the world of work improve if you could uncouple healthcare from your job. And you would have to make decisions about your career based Absolutely. on healthcare. And which... here's where the triangulation comes place. Yeah. We're not going to write a 4,000 Obamacare replacement. We're going to start with some market-driven initiatives. Like, why the hell do insurance, insurance, why can't Blue Cross Blue Shield sell everywhere? That's stupid. Yeah. Simple things in the market that my Republican colleagues have been talking about that we're going to work on, those are the big three. And we're tying these back to your experience in the pandemic. So you can say, okay, from that 18 months I just went through, I can clearly see how this will help. And then just get on a plane and just start going state by state. I don't, I think this, maybe we're seeing it come to an end. Everything's a 4,000 page omnibus style bill that when you're in power, you got one shot, you cram everything in uh, and, yeah. and you go. Because Republicans, that's just not the way to, to legislate. I mean, Republicans will will try this when they're in power, but they present it very differently. Yeah. I mean, the tax thing that Trump pushed through again under reconciliation, he didn't try to jam the entire wish list through. He's like, "What's most important to us? Taxes. That's what we're going with. Easy to understand, easy process." Let, can we can we just strip some of the complexity out of this build back better? Concentrate on a couple of things that make people's lives that they can recognize on a daily well, that's basis the thing. and call it that. The planks you mentioned, you gave real examples of uh, real life it's impacts. Not that tough, you know that I think people can relate to, and that's that's what the Democrats need to do. It's more than just talking in generalities, you know, yeah. and vagaries. I mean, they need to have concrete policy proposals that they can go on the stump with. And again, keep it short, like the three or four and hit them over again with the examples. Because right now, I mean, you can't talk about the bill back better because it includes everything under the sun sure. at one point, And then maybe not the next minute, it's all over the place. It's not something you can just easily talk about. And the Democrat, many Democrats are blaming the media, saying the media isn't doing a good job selling yeah. it. It's not the media's job to sell it. It's Democrats' job to sell it. And I can sympathize with one that blame the media because everybody wants to blame the media for everything. But this isn't their job. No, their job is it to not. sell it. And as Trump proved, if it's true, who cares? Does yeah. it sound good? Is it catchy? Do you have a phrase for it? Right. Can we come up with a slogan? You got to be able to market it. It's all about marketing. That's what people really want. And I guess I'm, I'm getting to the point where maybe I'm, I'm ready to concede the point. Biden isn't senile. He's just old. He's, yeah. And I think what we're seeing, too, 
Is he, he doesn't, doesn't have that have energy. The to... physical or mental energy. It's not that he's senile. No, it's he, not that he's, it's just, he's just he's old. He's cognizant. He understands it. But when you get up in, to that age, you, I mean, many people don't have the energy. They they can't go down there and cajole senators. No. and They're not picking up the phone and yelling. Like, they just don't have that energy. You think Biden takes a nap every day? I would. Oh, I, I would think so. I'd be surprised if he doesn't. If I was the president, I'd get up at like five. I'd His start age. my day from five to noon. I eat lunch. Then from noon to three... Every no, I, I'm talking to no human being. Unless a nuclear missile is in the air, just do you I'm know not which president it. started his day the latest? Trump, didn't yeah. he? He started like ten. Yeah, he would like start at ten, and then he would spend like an hour or two, like just looking at tweets and yeah. watching TV. And he then get so fired up by watching Fox. He might have two or three beatings and then golf in the afternoon, <laughs> and he's done. Yeah. If I were president, briefings. what would your presidential schedule be, Brandon? I think I'm, I'm five to noon, out from noon to three. Work again from three to six, then I'm done. That's it. Okay. Yeah, I might do like six thirty or seven, just because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> You're not a real morning person. I'm not. Uh, I am a night person though, and I'm so, a bit of a night owl, so I'd probably do that. Um, go a little bit late, or probably work later in the week, and then kind of take off early on Fridays. You just tell your staff, hey, I'm my core hours really are from like three to nine. Yeah. In the afternoon, pretty so much. You yeah. can expect. That's when I'm thinking. That's, that's when I'll when, be the most productive. Yeah. yeah, that's when you're going to get the calls and, and stuff. I just don't think Biden has, like I said, the mental stamina or energy to to really go out and try to do the hard stuff as president. And that's a problem because if he doesn't do it, who will? How did Afghanistan, you think, affect Biden? Or let, let me rephrase that. Do you think Biden's performance in Afghanistan has had anything to do with what we saw in Virginia? Or well, is it just another? No, I mean, it, I think it did. It was the catalyst for that um, fall in polling because prior to Afghanistan, Biden was doing very well from a polling perspective uh, for a first year president. I mean, he was doing better in, than what uh, George W. Bush and Trump, not, uh, not better than Obama, but better than those two, and was riding high. And then Afghanistan was when his poll numbers fell. And then there was just this. Um, uh, I think avalanche of bad yeah. news after that. It was kind of like cascading in terms of uh, the factors that caused him to drop further and further. You had the economic impacts, you had some of the, the COVID stuff, you had you know the COVID mandates, federal mandates, which are yeah. controversial in some quarters and is something that continues to be in the news. So you have all of this, and he wasn't able to notch a win. And that's where I do think if he was able to do pass infrastructure on its own, that would have been a positive accomplishment to highlight light to yeah. suck some of the oxygen away from all the negative news stories you would have had that as and that's just bad politics yeah. if you know you're taking a beating on afghanistan you followed up with the victory of the infrastructure deal well and i and that's what i said from the beginning like you take what you can get when you have a 50 50 senate and you have a three vote majority in the house and you get something where you get 19 republicans you run on that you Absolutely. just get that past the finish line Figure out the other stuff later, but trying to go full board with everything and one and and to leave that on the table is just nuts to me. I think what I learned about Biden Biden's presidency through Afghanistan is he's not going to ask a lot of questions, and when he decides he he's going know. to do something, he's simply going to do it. He just does it, and he does it. I there wasn't a whole lot of reflection either. I mean, when the media no. like it, it, he was interviewed, and when what was ha when it was all going down. He did it really kind of reflect and think back on, oh, maybe this wasn't done the proper way. He was just like, oh, no, we said we were going to get out. Yeah. Now, I do give him credit because they were able to get huge numbers of Americans and Afghanis out um, with that timetable with um, before the Taliban com completely took over. But at the same time, they were working against the clock, and there was clearly a lack of preparedness in terms of what needed to be done prior to that. And, you know, there wasn't really just any accounting of it. It was just kind of like, uh, it is what it is, and they moved on. If Biden would have gone on TV and done a 30-minute explanation to Afghanistan sometime in March, when he said, listen, folks, this is what the previous administration signed, this is the spot we're at, and this is what I'm doing, and this is why. If he just would have explained that oh, prior yeah. to the pullout. So the American people knew and had the context. would have been completely different. I don't know why he and no. the administration just assumed that Americans are going to know and remember that this started under Trump and this deal was signed by the Taliban. Yep. That was going on at the time the pandemic was starting. People weren't focused on that. Most no. people don't remember that. No. I mean, it, what happened in 2020 is a blur if it wasn't related to the pandemic. And we like wars that are 
well understood, yeah, quick, and we win. That that's the three criteria for a popular war. Afghanistan was not any of those no. things. And for the investment in blood and treasure over 20 years, I think as the American people, we deserve to hear a little bit more from the president about what he was doing and why. And I think that, for me, when he pulled the Afghanistan move the way he did, that was the head scratcher of, okay, we're not going back to normal. We're not going back to unity. That is not on his plate. Because if it were, he would have done this totally, totally different. Right. And I don't think, like, we all expected that he was going to pull out. He ran on that, but it was the manner in which he did it. And it was the lack of explanation context. I mean, there's a whole framework to doing something like that. And to, you know, again, making the case to the American people, uh, speaking to the history of the conflict and why it was intransient and it was intractable and we weren't going to succeed. And we had to kind of cut our losses and, and yeah. run. And, uh, I would have used the word run, but cut our losses and leave, I should have said. <laughs> yeah, Not, you, you politically cleaned that up. Yes, that's what I meant. Cut our losses and leave. But he didn't do any of that. No. So again, nope. it's just, it, it was a failed opportunity and it was left to, you know, I think um, just people, you know, kind of lower level defenders of the administration to make that case. But it was never made to the American people at I large. Mean, the first indication I got that we were seriously on mass scale pulling out of Afghanistan was the Twitter video of those poor people clinging yeah. to the cargo plane. Oh, and that was one of those images that seared into people's and like, memories. What yeah. the shit? What we're doing? I knew we were, but what the hell is going on? I think I think he misread people's reaction to that, and I think he he. He was running off the information. And the comparisons to uh, Vietnam. Yeah, you heard him say a bunch of times. They paid no penalty for that. We won't either. Let's go. Yeah. And I think Biden just gets something in his head that this is the way he's going to do it. And he just he just does it. And so I think that if you had not had that happen the way it did and cause his approval ratings to start to slide, that would have been decoupled from everything else that happened. And so it would have been less dramatic, but it's been this chipping away effect where yep. it's been, you know, just more and more and more and more. And so that gets you to where you are now, where across the country in many states, including many blue states, he's underwater. And so he has to turn that around. I mean, that's the challenge. He has to turn that around. The Democrats have to accomplish something. They have to be able to message their agenda on what, what they're for and who they're for. Uh, and it's not enough to just be anti-Trump. Trump is out of office. Yeah. They have to be able to sell an agenda to the American people that is broad and that resonates and that speaks to basic issues. If I was Biden, I'd get everybody together and say, we're not going anymore with everybody's white supremacist. Um, and you even saw that today. I mean, there are certain corners of progressive Twitter that were like, well, what, what do you expect? White women, you know, activate, you know, white women to go vote for the, the racist candidate. That's why we lost. If you think that's why McAuliffe Ugh. lost, you are a thousand percent wrong. And yeah. I think Jamal Hill tweeted that today is where I got that from. Mm. But if you're in that vein, uh, we're going to get our ass kicked. Yeah. We're going to get shellacked in the midterms. There's just no way around it. I mean, that's the type of tone and condescension that just causes people to yeah. dig in and to well, say, well, I if mean, you're you not... want four more years of Trump, keep going this right. way. This and, is how you got it. And that's what Democrats place. have to realize with the very strong probability that Trump is a nominee in 2024, the, there is no room or margin for error. Like Democrats have to do everything right or we have a return to autocracy and to seeing everything we saw that happened with Stop the Steal and the 2020 election become even worse. And we can't afford that at the end of the day. We just can't. I, I always ask these people, this question to somebody when we're talking about Trump in 2024. Let's say he wins the president. Who's his attorney general? That's a good question. I mean, you're kind of at the bottom of the barrel now. And I mean, if you look at everybody that left his administration, I, it really scares me because, I mean, it, it would have to be somebody like handpicked from Newsmax or from OAN. It would have to be. Who's the secretary of state? <laughs> Who's chief of staff? Yeah. I mean, we were dealing with the C team before. Right. Now we're talking not even bottom of the barrel. We're talking poke a hole in the barrel and what's yeah. below that. Also, too. It took Trump two or three years to figure out how to manipulate the presidency for what he wanted. He wins re-election. He knows day one. Oh, yeah. It, if, if that's what you want, Democrats, keep calling everybody racist. 
Keep saying everybody's a white supremacist. Keep going back to that well and see see where it gets you. And and that's what frustrates me to, to such a degree because it's the lack of a big picture mentality. When you have Democrats that are in the weeds focused on just arcane aspects of policy, and I'm like, no, this is about policy. Like 2024 is going to be about democracy or autocracy. Yeah. It's about where we're headed as a country. Like we have to get that right. So you need to be able to set aside your internal it, fights yeah. over policy and realize that the writing is on the wall. And that if we have an election like we did in 2020, despite the fact that the numbers were large enough to show that it, there should have been like n- no contesting of the results at all, it's going to be different next time around because most of those people that acted as the vanguard against yeah. the Trump conspiracy, they've been replaced. So canvassers, board of canvas people, um, county people, I mean, these county parties and state parties have all replaced most of those actors who acted in good faith and put yeah. the country above themselves. They've replaced them with Trump MAGA people. There's too much on the line to be performing this poorly. Yeah. And as Democrats, if our core pitch to people were put the adults back in charge and we'll show you how the government can function on a daily basis to improve your life, we're failing miserably at it. Miserably. Yeah. And at this point, I think what it's appealing to, some of the natural um, instincts among humans, just put the big man in charge again. <sighs> Isn't it yeah. better just when we have one guy just telling us what to do? Isn't it easier? I mean, we don't have to put up with any of this shit. That's how all, all authoritarian regimes start. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to sound crass, but... Can we stop it with the pronoun shit? Can we stop it with some of the the kind of way to the to the left progressive demands people are making? You know, call me they them. I I am all for using language that makes people feel inclusive. But it's obvious at this point that some of this stuff is simply rebranding things to exclude moderates and classes of people that they don't feel are allies to that, to that group. And that's a small vocal minority that if we choose to keep catering to that, I'm not saying we have to abandon and that we don't support, but if we keep pushing that as what is perceived as the, one of the corner pieces of our agenda, we're going to lose. Well, it's a, and it's not the, I think catering so much as uh, I think excluding those if, that don't meet your standard of using the pronouns exactly right or in the right context where you decide, okay, this person's going to be canceled or is no longer going to be, I mean, you know, viable because you don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself here because I don't know how to use they, them for an individual because it's not grammatically correct. Is that, does that make me a bad person? Or if you, and you know, among a group use like you guys and, and, and that's suddenly considered, you're evil. Right. So there's that aspect of it, which I think has uh, just become out of hand. Um, and, you know, and ironically, again, time and attention is spent on there, where if you're talking about being inclusive, there's still battles to be fought to ensure that, like, LGBTQ Real people battles. have the same rights as Real everybody fights. else. Yes. I, and so, you know, it, again, it's about priorities. Point. There's so many real things for the LBGTQ plus community we could be fighting for, but we're not. Because we're talking about pronouns and how to use them. And like you said, small, insignificant things. Insignificant in the grand total of what's at stake. I'm not trying to downplay language. Because in the past couple years, it's become very apparent how language repeats patterns of behavior. And I get that. But we're talking about in practical terms. Do you want more Trump or Trump-like? Then this is the path that got us there. It comes down to you have to pick your battles. Correct. And are, is pronouns, is that going to be the battle you pick? Or is it going to be, um, you know, racism? Or is it going to be about protecting our institutions and, and making sure that you ha- resonate with Americans on bread and butter issues? Like, yeah. I, it has to, you have to pick. You can't choose every issue. We did almost a full hour on that. Let, let's end with, are you offended if somebody shouted, let's go Brandon at you? I'm not. I mean, it's funny because I've never heard my name so many times and so many different places online and on TV. It took me a little bit to connect the Let's Go Branded and how that chant got started. (laughs) For people who don't know. It's tongue-in-cheek. So it happened in a NASCAR (laughs) race where reporter on television. deep south. Yeah, people were yelling F Biden in the background. And I think the somebody asked her what they were saying. And she said, oh, they're saying Let's Go Brandon for the NASCAR driver. (laughs) So 
Trump conservative MAGA people took it as, oh, look at this. Here's like the media, fake news, like trying to say something is what it isn't. And then they ran with it and adopted that as kind of an internal, um, you know, slogan, which basically means F Biden. But they're saying, let's go Brandon. And they're using it kind of more broadly beyond that, like critiquing Biden, if they're calling out the Democrats on a policy approach or or if they think something's insincere or not legitimate in terms of what they're hearing, if they hear think it's fake, they will shout, let's go, Brandon, like as kind well, of a... It, any Democrat that is off-put by that needs to look up the definition of the word hypocrisy. Because yeah. four years, like when Robert De Niro got up and shouted, fuck Trump at the Tonys or the Emmys or wherever he was, we all roundly stood up and cheered and thought that was just awesome. Right. So, and if the president of the United States, whomever he or she may be, is so fragile that NASCAR chant people shouting, fuck Joe Biden, if you can't take that, you can't be president. There's also, too, to my understanding, a very long tradition in comedy and in just in, in the public in general of making fun of the president. We do yeah. it all the time. And this suddenly becomes some rally point for us. I, I, what got me was when somebody on MSNBC is like, you know, this is what if he chanted, let's go ISIS or, well, he didn't. That's yeah. not what he said. <laughs> and the two aren't the same. I mean, it's a dumb comparison. Yeah. Brandon, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. Joe and I are going to, to Denver for the weekend. If our Southwest pilot shouted, <laughs> let's go, Brandon, I wouldn't think he's a terrorist. I wouldn't think he's from ISIS. I would just think he's somebody trying to gain some attention. Yeah. And once again, attention seeking. Yeah, we, that's we've it. lost the ability just to laugh at something saying that's silly and move on. Well, like with everything, when you draw attention to it, it becomes noticed more and it's used more often. So I think for Democrats and those on the left, the best thing to do is just ignore it, not give it any oxygen. Have you watched Dune yet? I haven't. I need to. <laughs> Neither have I. I was going to, but I'm assuming it's like a two and a half, two hour. It is. It's, it's a, it's a long movie. Yeah. I sat down like Sunday to watch it. I'm like, I don't, I just don't have the energy to stay up for two and a half hours. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I need to just set aside time at some point and do it. But again, I haven't seen the old movie, and I haven't read the book, so I'm kind of out of the loop. The book, give yourself two months to do. It's a long book, it's, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's like a thousand pages of, ugh. yeah, it, it, it's a lot. Not that I've read it, but I've looked at it one time and said, yeah, this is, this is way too much. The 80s movie from David Lynch is just a, an abomination, but it's got some funny parts to it unintentional funny but there's some chuckles in it to what they're trying to do so uh, that, that's what i've heard like it it was uh, kind of panned widely when it came out but it's yeah. become kind of a cult classic in the last several years i mean take this this massive book that outlays this huge universe and try to condense it into a single two-hour film is is not very uh not very likely to happen and happen well yeah i'm still trying to get through squid game i'm halfway through um, it's not finished with that yet. So did you find like before the pandemic, you could just pound through a series of shows, just bang, bang, bang. Oh yeah. Now I don't, I've stopped doing that and I don't know why it's not like I don't have time. Yeah. I just haven't, I'm just not that into finding something and binging it anymore. I guess. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of the same way. I'm just more slow. So I, has I your, know. has your phone replaced your TV for a lot where you're looking at like TikTok or something on that instead of watching a, a series on your, on the tube? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that started to, um, I haven't, I've yet to get into the whole TikTok craze. So I know you can burn a lot of time that way, but it's other just... than I have people that send me TikTok, so yeah. I'll see them that way, but I don't have an account, so I'm not just scrolling through them. I do that all the time. I'll send people I know or my kids TikToks and stuff because it's just, if you're just looking again for mindless stupidity, TikTok is the ocean you want to swim go, in yeah. when, you're, when you're looking for that. But I don't know. My It seems like during the pandemic, my, my viewer, my viewing patterns have changed away from series and things that take hours to watch way more into just small clips, social media, stuff like that. It seems yeah. like is the thing. I don't know why. Cause I've opened, it's opened up big swaths of time. I'm just not feeling it in that way. anymore. I mean, there's, there's still a couple of films coming out that I'm eager for and looking forward to. And there's a new Ghostbusters afterlife film, uh, which that looks like it's going to suck. Really? Uh, no, I'm, I'm uh, kind of, I, I, I with mean, Paul Rudd and the little kid from Stranger Things. But yeah, but it's like the kids of the original characters. So that's what's kind of, uh, there's a whole nostalgic aspect to it. So let me put it this way. Nobody in that cast is as talented as Bill Murray. Nobody in that That's cast true. is as talented as Dan Aykroyd. 
No, the person who wrote that movie can't write as well as Harold, Harold Ramis. Well, that's a given, yeah. So I don't, I just, and did you see the remake, the, the female remake of Ghostbusters? I never, I haven't seen that, yeah. Sucked. I, it was horrible. I yeah. I don't know. I mean, I could, I guess I could see that movie being good, but that, that's got a long, that's got a pretty far off target to hit, dude, when you talk about the original Ghostbusters. Uh, that's true. And I, I don't think, nothing can live up to the original Ghostbusters. Do you ever watch Ghostbusters kind of 2? I did, yeah. That movie really sucked. Yeah. That had Not Harold, the same. Harold Ramis and like the, the photo was haunted or something. Oh, that's right, yeah. It's pretty dumb. Ugh. I wish Sigourney Weaver would find her way back into this Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, that would be good. I did hear that they're making a Jurassic Park movie where they're bringing back all the original actors from the 1993 Ugh. film. For what purpose? I don't know. I, I, I They've somehow crafted a storyline around it. I don't I'm know sure. what the... Uh, story arches but um yeah all of the originals so again trying to go back to that nostalgia feel i mean because the latest ones have somehow i think gotten pretty far away from the original story it's just just more evidence of there are no new original ideas everybody wants to go back to something that they can just make remakes and off the brand name and everybody just wants to build a brand or build a franchise that's it that's our hour thanks brandon thanks craig Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.